Hey there, wonderful, amazing listener. Do you have a website? Would you like to have one? Guess what? There's an easy, fun way to do it. Turn your great idea into a reality with Squarespace. They make it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind, or just being you on the internet, that platform that is such a 2019 thing. That's, a, that's my bold prediction. It's not going away. So use that internet to head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code crack to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ. And I am also, also going to talk to you about Harry S. Truman. And uh, the S doesn't stand for anything. I don't know if people know that. It's just a letter. Uh, but he was a president of the United States. And I've been thinking about him a lot lately, uh, partly because I'm reading an amazing biography of him by David McCullough, but also because his lifespan is instructive for all of us. And, uh, and here's what I mean by that. Harry S. Truman was born in 1884. In his lifetime, he would deal with an, an insane range of things that weren't even invented or around when he was born. He was He was born in you know, horse and buggy times, basically. And by the time he was a grown adult person, he was the president of the United States. Those existed. That was a thing. But he was dealing with whether or not to roll back communism, a philosophy that was not running any governments when he was born, and whether to roll it back with the atomic bomb, a science fiction weapon to someone from 1884. And he had to decide whether or not to drop it on countries. Sometimes he did. Sometimes he didn't. And... I think his life is one of the most amazing examples of how uh, uh, we're all going to be alive a long time. Uh, of course, accidents happen or, or some uh, tragic thing happens, but the vast majority of us are going to live many decades. And because of that, we're going to go from being born in one spot and then having what feels like a Star Trek future happen to us as we go along. If you're born on a Missouri farm in 1884, like Harry Truman was, your parents are not saying to themselves, I need to raise this boy properly so he can drop an atom splitting bomb the correct way. It's not a thing that comes up, not to imply there is a correct way to do it. Uh, let's let's not drop any bombs. But I think that leads us into today's topic for the episode. It is the end of the world mentality and why that's ridiculous. And one more time, that topic is the end of the world mentality and why that's ridiculous. And my guest today writes for Cracked and the New York Times bestseller list as David Wong. His true name is Jason Pargin, and he has a fantastic new column that sparked this entire episode. I think we can just get you straight into it from there and from my little Harry Truman parable. We all live a long time and let's act like it. So please sit back or sit with perfect posture, or do some like stretching or calisthenics or something. Any Anything that makes you healthier and happier, let's do it. And here's this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Jason Pargin. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. Jason, thank you so much for this column and and a thing that I think is overall positive about the entire world and life on Earth. I'm very excited about it. Yeah, and we've had previous episodes where we've actually talked about whether or not the world is getting better or life is getting better or whether or not society is on the verge of collapse. 
this is not that episode. This <laughs> is spe- specifically about the weird effect that believing in the end of the world or just believing that things are always going to get worse has on you emotionally, psychologically, and your ability to live your life. Yeah, it's the entire way the mindset affects it. Because also, we're not a we're not very hippy dippy people. I would say we don't think like, oh, just think differently about the world and it'll magically make it better. No, like your mindset tangibly impacts it, and and here's how that works. Here's everything about it. Yeah, and as something that had used to come up a lot on the the Jack podcast episodes uh, b- before he abandoned us, <laughs> was the concept that humans aren't very good about thinking about the future. We are, our brains are not built for it because as organisms, it's only very recently in our development that we've lived this long. Like we used to be a primate that only lived whatever, 25 or 30 years. So the concept of like making long-term decisions, that's not something you had to do as a hunter gatherer so much. If you're in a climate where the food is just always there to be found, the concept of, okay, what's the food supply going to look like 20 years from now, that didn't enter your brain. And there was no evolutionary advantage to long-term thinking, right? Because if you lived long enough to, if you survived long enough to reach sexual maturity, you could reproduce and that was it. And the ones who sat around thinking, yeah, but what's, what's the jungle going to look like 50 years from now? (laughs) There was no advantage in that for most of the time humans have been around. So as a result, almost every societal problem you see is based on this flaw that we always take what feels good today or what tastes good today or what's fun today over what is going to happen in the long term it's it's human nature it's actually admirable that we do as well as we do it at trying to think of saving money or retiring or whatever the type of pessimism that's cool these days that we're all screwed regardless I have very little respect for it, and I don't think of it as like a form of realism or anything like that. I believe it is a coping mechanism to get out of having to think about the future. Because we have this instinct uh, baked into us from thousands of years of not really needing to do that. And then we have all this information that says we probably should do that. And then, boom, conflict in our brain. And then we do jokes like... Uh, I guess it uh, sort of leads nicely off of thinking about the past and evolution and survival. There's this Twitter account you found called Sweet Meteor O Death. It's at SMOD for real. And it's it's a genre of humor where I think they're really kind of not kidding. Yeah, but but it's also really common. Like they didn't invent the concept of the sweet meteor of death. Like there's bumper stickers for who are you voting for in 2020? And I'm voting for the meteor as in I'm voting for the meteor that will cause planetary extinction and save us from all of this. And that's part of the hot genre of humor among the kids these days where the joke (laughs) is like there'll be a a web comic and someone will threaten that like it'll be a doctor telling them hey if you don't give up cigarettes you could die and then the guy's like don't get my hopes up doc 
Um, and the punchline <laughs> is the same every time, that they want to die, that they would welcome it. So the great and terrible thing about humor is that it sometimes is meant to signal that you don't believe a thing. Like that's the whole purpose of shock value and humor is you're saying the most inappropriate thing possible that of course you don't believe because only a crazy person would. But sometimes it signals that we do believe in a thing. This is the whole issue with like racist or sexist jokes where sometimes people make them because it's shocking. Like this is clearly inappropriate. That's why it's a joke is because it's inappropriate. But then if you actually pin them down and get their views on the things you realize, Oh, it's a joke. And also they believe in those things. (laughs) And it's the same thing here. These jokes are very similar. If you have a friend who's constantly joking about suicide Some people joke about that because they have a dark sense of humor. Some people joke about it because it's something inside them that they're trying to let out. Like the guy who will talk to his crush and joke about, hey, maybe we should get together. Ha ha. Wouldn't that be funny? Yeah. And they're putting it out there as a test to see how she reacts. And so when you see people on everywhere on social media, making jokes about, well, I'm rooting for the media to just kill everyone rather than have to put up with another four years of this, or who cares about this thing because we're all screwed anyway. Some of the people are saying it because it's just the most inappropriate possible thing to say. But then you ask a lot of these people or get into a serious conversation with them about global warming or the future of society. And you realize, oh no, they are actually rooting for the meteor. Right. So we're we're talking more to that latter group, but here's the trick. Lots of the people making these jokes don't know which group they're in. What do you mean they don't know which group they're in? Like they themselves don't know what they're talking about? As in lots of times we actually don't know where something is coming from when we make jokes about it. Oh, we yeah make the joke because it feels good to make the joke. But if you actually sat someone down and examined their beliefs, like, well, do you really believe this? You get two different answers from two different people making the same joke. And you get some people who will give you one answer. And then five years later, will give you another answer. And they've been making the same jokes the whole time. Some of the, personalities I followed on the internet who in the last five years have disappeared down the alt-right hole. Yeah. Like people I was fans of gaming personalities, things like that. And they all started out like making jokes that were clearly just jokes. Like, you know, haha, wouldn't it be funny if, if I was actually one of these jerks talking about Jews and all of that. And then a few years later, they are posting links unironically to commentary, like saying, no, the Jews do control the banks and they are engineering the wars. And at some point in the course of making the same joke, they shifted from saying the most inappropriate thing possible to saying, no, this is, I'm now joking about it because this is what I actually believe. And I want to get those ideas out there. And it's very similar here. I think that if you're constantly making like nihilistic jokes and references, it can start by, well, I'm just a dark person and it's, it's not polite to say these things. So that's the joke that it's not polite. But then over time, 
you kind of become the thing that you talk about. The human brain is weird that way. It, it, you kind of reverse engineer your beliefs to the things that you're saying. When we describe these as jokes, I feel like we're also describing not incredibly advanced or high quality jokes. Like most, most of them are just sort of, oh, everything should die, LOL. It, it's making me think of the comedian Anthony Jeselnik, who, who has a new special out. And his comedy persona, he's described it as Satan. Uh, he just jokes as the worst person he could possibly be. He, his, his comedy persona commits murders and, and, and uh, violence and so on. But the jokes are so perfectly classically constructed that, you know, he's kidding. And like it clearly takes so much work to write them that well that he's kidding. I think basically everybody else on Earth, it's not as clear and then this phenomenon that you're describing happens where they, they just start to inhabit the thing that they pretended to be. Well, and the other thing is, is you attract other people who respond to what you're saying in a certain way and they reinforce it. Yeah. So if you're making the joke, some of the people laughing are laughing because they know it's inappropriate and some are laughing because they agree. There have been comedians over time who have created a fake persona meant to mock something only to have people like unironically respond to it. And then they kind of had to either go along with it or lose their fans. So eventually <laughs> they just became the person that they were making fun of. Like the Beastie Boys, you know, fight for your right to party. That was making fun of those party anthems. That was them making fun of the, the jerks that they knew growing up. And then they had all of these high school kids like unironically like, yeah, I should be allowed to smoke in my bedroom <laughs> song. You guys are the coolest. And so they had like this crisis where they realized that their their fans were all people they hated. We're prefacing all of this this way because I'm worried that people will want to say you've devoted an entire podcast to just some dumb jokes people are making. What we're trying to establish is that with dumb jokes, we're talking to the people whom these actually are affecting. If you are a happy person, you're confident in your future, you are saving for your retirement, you're optimistic about tomorrow, this episode probably does not help you unless you have friends who are not like this, and you almost certainly do. But what I do not want to do is let people think that we are grown-ups who don't recognize that the kids these days like to make dark, nihilistic humor. Uh, the suicide yeah. rate is climbing in America. The rate of depression, substance abuse, those things are all going up. So the symptoms of a populace that actually has lost confidence in the future are all there. So that's why I want to talk about this, and that's why I wrote the article about it, because I grew up in the 80s under the shadow of nuclear war. And I am telling you, I'm 44 years old, and never thought I would make it to 44 when I was a kid. I did not know the future would arrive, and this affected me in profound ways that I don't want another generation to repeat. And you describe it in some other articles and things as something that I guess kind of everyone around you bought into. And when we talk about these comedians getting positive feedback from pretending to be terrible people, I think today anyone can get positive feedback on something like this message of the world's going to end. Like we've got this tweet here uh, by at based Tyborg. The tweet is, I work at an escape room and a group of kids doing one asked, what happens if we don't get out? 
I replied, you die instantly. And the kids started yelling, yes, and high-fiving. Holy shit, LMAO. And the tweet got over 38,000 retweets uh, for just a regular person telling a story where, haha, isn't it funny that even children believe we're all about to die? I don't know. It speaks to a lot of this kind of just expectation around around the world and also people getting to be sort of rewarded socially for uh, not even necessarily buying into it, but sharing it around, spreading it around. I think if you are someone a little bit younger and you're watching a movie like RoboCop or Red Dawn, one of these mid 80s movies you know, any of the ones that are about like a post-apocalypse, like Escape from New York, it has to just come off as like this 80s Cold War era cheese. Like watching Red Dawn, which again, I don't even know if the kids today ever have any reason to watch that movie. I don't even know if it's available on streaming. But, you know, this is a movie from 1984 about a Soviet invasion of the United States and a group of high school kids who have to basically become insurgent fighters and help defend America from the the Russians until, like, finally they, they successfully repel the invasion. That has to seem so corny now and, like, weird but the context, when I saw this in 1984, when I was, it would have been, or 85, whenever I would have finally have seen it on cable or whatever, I would have been 10, 11 years old and was 100% sure, like, this is my future. I'm going to have to fight the Russians, whether I have to do it here or in Europe or somewhere, either there will be a nuclear war that kills us all, or else we will have to fight a land war against the Soviets. But there was no scenario by which it was not going to happen. The conventional wisdom was it is a matter of when it occurs. Uh, that's why wow. Ronald Reagan was elected, was to be the wartime president, because we were going to have to fight the Russians. The 80s were when it all came to a head. Uh, this is when the military spending reached its apex. Like We broke the bank on nuclear weapons and tanks and aircraft carriers, and it was not preventative. It was belief that we were going to have to fight World War III very, very soon. At the same time, I was raised in an evangelical church that was very big on the end of the world and the rapture. I'm sure this was not a coincidence. I don't doubt that these type of religions did better in this era because it did seem like, you know, this is the apocalypse coming but in my childhood, like on Sunday, I was taught that Christ is going to return and tear open the sky and, and kill everyone and then bring the Christians into heaven after there's, there's an apocalyptic war that finally ends humanity. And then during the week on the nightly news, it was all about... Uh, the arms race and the MX missile and all of these little individual controversies and the Russians moving into Afghanistan and Nicaragua and all the things going on in Central America. And then at school during the day, we would have the nuclear war drills where we would have to hide under our desks. Yeah. So the nuclear bomb doesn't harm you under your <laughs> desk. Right. The point is, is that, as difficult as it is for an average person to think about the future, 
I never thought about the future. Like it just wasn't, even when I went away to college, like picking a major, things like that, uh, it was kind of like, what's the point? It, it didn't, I was totally wow. unprepared because it was all just, I tried to imagine myself at, at age 40 or age 50 and it was just nonsense. It was just uh, shadows. I had been trained that the future was not a thing. There's an interesting phenomenon where Hollywood sort of tested whether that specific Cold War enemy country fear is still a thing by remaking Red Dawn, because they did a, a 2012 remake with a big cast, like Chris Hemsworth was in it and a lot of people, and it uh, they had to change it to a North Korean invasion, but it didn't even make its budget back. It was not a successful movie when it was kind of a defining movie of the 80s. Like, we we now have all these new fears that we think will end the world, but that one seemed so tangible to you at the time and then has since kind of uh, melted away. And I don't want to have to make the separate side argument that, oh, well, that was always an overhyped thing. It wasn't. We came close to nuclear war multiple times. It, you know, yeah. it, tensions were very high. The missiles were real. They were pointed at us. It is, for some reason, key to the American identity to believe that we're always under siege. Yeah. Even when we've achieved global hegemony, even when we basically have everything under our thumb, control global trade, everyone in every country has to speak English if they want to do business, we still have to believe it's the Alamo. We are surrounded by enemies. We played up the threat of ISIS this way that, oh gosh, ISIS, their goal is to take over the whole world. That means they're probably going to do it. You know, we need to completely rebuild our entire society around preventing ISIS attacks. And right. ISIS is pretty much no no more now. Uh, and they were never really a threat to America. They were a threat to do damage. They were a threat to go to a parade and kill 27 people with a van attack. They were not an existential threat to the country. But it was extremely important and is always extremely important that we believe we're under some sort of existential threat. I do not know if this is an American thing. Some of you from other countries, I don't know if it's like this in France, but this is the way it is in America. And it has to do with there are religious elements. There are mass media elements where in order to get people to read your newspaper or watch your news or watch your movie, you have to make it sound like there's some imminent danger, right? right so we yeah. kind of overhype threats like Ebola, you know, something that is a disease that is dangerous in Congo because they have a very poor healthcare system and it's very difficult for them to get proper care to people. There was no threat to America, but it doesn't matter. We had to have that period in 2014 where every headline was like, are your children going to die of Ebola tomorrow? Click here to find out. Uh, yeah. And the answer was always no. Even in twenty in twenty eighteen, we had uh, uh, almost like that way you described the Red Dawn remake, where it's North Korea somehow invading us. In in twenty eighteen, it was a caravan of starving migrants is coming, and that was somehow supposed to be fearful or scary, like they were going to to do something to us, even though they were starving and fleeing. And every single, in particular, election for people's nefarious reasons. There's that that new fear that always gets propped up. Yeah, and here's where I want to make an important distinction. 
in most of these cases, they are building up a threat to motivate you to some kind of action. You have to come vote for me or donate to my campaign or else the Central American refugees are going to uh, come eat all of your food or whatever the danger was supposed to be. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They tried it from several angles that they could be bringing disease or they could have ISIS in there. Because after all, (laughs) if just three... If just three ISIS members make it into America, America is so fragile, we'll just collapse. Like, like it's, we're on the brink of falling apart that if there's just, you know, three bad guys in that caravan, that's it. This whole thing is, is going to fall apart. They are trying to motivate you to do something. And when they exaggerate the threat of crime, they are trying to motivate you to give them more power. They're using fear to get you to vote for them or to buy their product you know, Alex Jones does his show and then at every break, he's going to sell you some supplements that will fortify your body against the mind control fluoride that's in the water or whatever threat he has just, he's manufacturing a threat and then is selling you a cure or a prophylactic for that threat. Right. What I'm saying is that the accumulation of all of that on the human brain gets you to a place where you're not motivated to do anything. Because here's the other thing. All of those people in my church, if you sat them down and asked them back in the 80s, do you think the apocalypse is imminent? They would say yes. And if you hook them up to a lie detector machine, it would show they're telling the truth. But... They were not digging bomb shelters. They were not stocking canned goods or water filtration systems or prepping. They weren't actually taking any actions. And the people who are now on social media or on their podcasts or on their YouTube channels talking about how the system is on the verge of collapse worldwide, how authoritarians are about to take over, the economy is about to collapse or the environment is going to, there's going to be sudden collapse and and species extinction and all that. They're not doing anything as a response to that. They're turning off their camera after their YouTube vlog has been recorded. And then they're going to go play a video game for four hours and then have dinner and go to bed. Their actions don't match the way you would be behaving. If you actually thought, an actual emergency was was coming. They are instead using it to establish a general mood that says you can't do anything. It's almost like promoting a form of helplessness because the whole theme is, well, these corporations and these governments and these authoritarians, like they have all the power, you can't do anything. And then that's the end of the discussion. So the question of Do they actually believe in collapse? Do they actually believe that things are about to fall apart? The answer is it doesn't seem like it because they're not taking any actions. The actions you would actually take if you thought it was, they just believe it to the point of saying it and then making other people believe it. At the same time, if you had come back to me when I was, you know, when I was 10 years old, I don't know if I consciously thought vividly like mapped out in my head, how would I handle a Soviet invasion of my country? 
I only was thinking in terms of there won't be a future, but not, not so much that I would be dead, but just so much that none of this matters. And ultimately that is what Alex Jones or any of the people doing the same things Alex Jones does only from the left. Ultimately what they're selling is none of this matters. It seems particularly acute with maybe the, the, doomsday problems of today, not that nuclear weapons have gone away and not that people don't still think in some places that the book of Revelation is going to happen and there will be a a beast and everything. But it it seems like among the doomsday problems of today, it would be the environment is going to collapse, maybe that there's too much social and income inequality to uh, for most people to have the kind of families and life they want to. Also, maybe that our politics are too divided to not devolve into some kind of horrible civil war or something. I mean, all all three of those things, the environment and politics and economy, those all feel fixable. Like they feel like something we could do something about. I, I can't do anything about the book of Revelation coming to pass, I think. But the other things, it seems like they're things we could do things about and organize around. But it seems easier to say well, the meteor will just resolve everything by extinguishing us like the dinosaurs. But that gets into the separation between how we talk about it and how we behave, because clearly you can't influence whether or not a meteor kills everyone. So what is the motivation to make that joke? Or what is the motivation (laughs) to feel like you always have to be topping someone else's misery? And that's... My assertion is that when we talk about people faking their lives for social media, we usually think in terms of they're trying to like their Instagram makes it seem like they're always on vacation or it makes it seem like their hobbies are, or their lives are just prettier than ours. Like, you know, Oh, I'm just relaxing. And they've got it. There's like a picture of a wine glass next to a book. And the book is always some respectable book that only a smart person would read. And they're (laughs) eating some meal that is, is very dainty. And it's something that a person with sophisticated taste would eat. That's the stereotype. The reality is, at least in my social media bubble, is that people are much more likely to exaggerate how miserable they are. Partly for humorous effect. Like on one hand, the joke is, of course, I'm not in mortal danger. My life is, you know, when when the joke you make on social media is, I just had to wait in line for four hours at the DMV. I hope that North Korea launches a nuclear warhead and destroys (laughs) this entire city. So I won't have to wait here any longer. The joke is of course that this is a small problem that I've been inconvenienced for an afternoon and I am overreacting to it by wishing that all million people in the city would be killed. So I don't have to wait in line any longer, but because that's the joke that everyone makes and that's the attitude everyone is going for it's kind of like the opposite of that thing where you're depressed, but you have to go to a birthday party and kind of put on a smiley face and you feel that pressure to perform being fine. It's almost the opposite. There's a competition to pretend you're more miserable than everyone else. (laughs) And it's because it kind of gives you street cred. Like, Like it's not cool to just be happy. There is this thing where people 
feel like they have to elevate everything to apocalyptic levels, but they know it's kind of a performance. And I think some of the people who hear it know it's a performance, but I still feel like in general, it creates a, a mood of, oh, you're right. Everything is miserable. Everything has always been miserable. We're rooting for the meteor because none of this is worth, is worth saving. Which to get there from it's frustrating to wait in line at the DMV is insanity, but that's still how it works. This is all emanating from the most comfortable population in the history of the species. Many thanks to our friends at Squarespace for helping us make this show a thing that you get to listen to and, and I get to do. And, and uh, they're, they're really making everybody's lives better, I think. It's a good thing. But you know what else they do? Most of the time, they help people build websites. That is their deal. And whether you're looking to start a business or showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and so much more, Squarespace is the tool for you. The thing about Cracked Podcast listeners... I feel, especially having met a bunch of them in the Midwest recently, is that they are amazing. They have all kinds of different interests and things they care about and things they just want to know about or, or make part of their lives. So I know if you're a Cracked Podcast listener, there is a Squarespace website for you. There is something you could build for yourself to either share who you are or connect with other people by bringing them there. Squarespace has built-in analytics that make it easy to tell who is coming to your website and how often. Also, Squarespace sites are optimized for mobile right out of the box. Everybody's using their phones and tablets and other devices like that to use the internet. You are probably listening to the show on one of those phones, so you know all about it. And if you build a Squarespace website, it will be ready for your phone and everybody else's. So let's get you to it. Head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com cracked. Offer code cracked. Here, Colin, that sparked this originally. The title is Five Crucial Things to Remember About Our Wretched Hellscape. And clearly tongue-in-cheek because, as you describe in it and describe elsewhere here, we are, as humanity, pretty much better off than we've ever been before. Obviously, everybody's mileage varies, but technology and resources and other things we have have just generally improved the life for everyone, and no one wants to live in any other era available to us if you had a time machine. And not only that, let's say you did a favor for a wizard I always do. So go on. And in exchange, the wizard is like in your reward for driving me to the airport or whatever you did for the wizard. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. Is I will give you the option to be reborn, not only be reborn in any other era, but as the wealthiest person in the country of that era. Right. So you can be reborn in 1850 as the wealthiest person in America. No one would take it. Because it doesn't matter that you're the wealthiest person in 1850, anesthetic still doesn't exist. You, <laughs> you, dentistry, dentistry is still a guy with a pair of pliers, like in a filthy apron, caked with human mucus and blood, just pulling the tooth out with a rusty pair of pliers. There's no such thing as air conditioning. You know, th there's no such thing as indoor plumbing. There's no internet. There's no reliable phone. It takes months to cross to another. If you want to visit another country, you got to do it by boat. 
There's not <laughs> cures for lots of common diseases or infections. You can die from a bad bout of diarrhea. Like not only going to another era, but going to another era where you have infinite resources, people wouldn't do it. What we're saying is that the things you say about the end of the world and the things you say about longing for death or for the meteor to put an end to all of this has nothing to do with any kind of reality. My argument is that it is a coping mechanism because we find it comforting. Yeah. Because it is scary to think about a future that you will actually be responsible for. It is actually much easier to imagine that a curtain will just fall down over the future and then you won't have to worry about it anymore. My issue is, is that it is not a good coping mechanism. It feels better for a bunch of different reasons. Like I said, it, it makes you feel tough because you're living through the harshest of times and your life is an adventure and you're braving a wretched hellscape. So it makes right. you sound better. But it also means that anything that's like, well, what does it matter? We're all screwed anyway. That is a, therefore, I don't have to do anything coping mechanism. One genre of tweet, for those of you out there who don't use Twitter, and it really is terrible. It don't, don't start. Yeah, don't start. Don't do it. But one genre of viral tweet is when these sites like CNBC or the Wall Street Journal, anyone who gives like financial advice, will we'll give some sort of really out-of-touch financial advice and oh, then yeah. it always goes viral because it's always <laughs> hilarious. And it's like, you know, financial advice for millennials. Instead of going to the Cayman Islands for a vacation, try going somewhere in the United States. It's cheaper. And then people will all yell at it or dunk on it, as we say on the Twitter well, the most recent one of these I saw was a study that one of these, The Economist or one of these you know, finance type publications put out there saying, did you know that most millennials have less than $500,000 saved for retirement? <laughs> Half a million dollars. <laughs> and... And so obviously everyone was yelling at it like, I don't, I, I'm worried about making rent because I'm driving for Uber and Lyft because I don't know what I'm going to make week to week. I'm worried about having enough money for Friday, let alone, can I retire at age 65 or do I have to wait until age 67, you know? And so <laughs> any attempt to think about that, to think about myself at age 65 or anything like that, I just can't. If you watch a movie about the apocalypse, if you watch a Terminator movie or whatever, that's a movie about billions of people dying, but it's a lot more fun than if you now watched a movie about a 70-year-old Arnold Schwarzenegger having to plan for his retirement, but he has to keep working even though he has dementia and he's in chronic pain. Right. You'd be like, no, give me the apocalypse movie. This is depressing. Give me the thing where everyone dies. That's actually cool. <laughs> this other thing is just sad. It's like, well, no, how can everyone dying in a in a big charred mass grave, how can that be less depressing than, than this guy who's made it to old age and had children and grandchildren? But it is. We would all much prefer the explosions. 
Yeah, it's just a it's a simpler narrative. It seems like an easier thing to do. Even getting into this part of the topic, you mentioned like that this apocalypse sort of thing frees us from the responsibility of X, Y, Z. We just want to be freed from responsibility in general. It's it's just a fundamental pain, but uh, it's it's also how everything works. And so I guess our fiction and our jokes let us kind of run away from that in our heads. And that part is not new. The reason why, you know, Westerns dominated Hollywood from when film was invented up until, what, the 19... 19- 70s i don't know what the end of the western era was yeah but yeah people were obsessed obsessed with this era because the thing they were obsessed with was not the reality of moving out west and then starving to death or dying of dysentery the thing that they were obsessed with was this mythology of we strike out into an empty stretch of land there are no other people or at worst there's like a small town with like one bar and one bank. And we have a very simple enemy, which is the the evil, the, the Indians who are out to kill us. And we have to fight them and survive. And it is very, very straightforward. It is us, the land, the bad guys. That's it. Not bills, not retirement and banks and interest rates and car loans and a million things and people yelling in your ear. It is all stripped away. And that is the one thing that the future is not going to give to you. Yeah, I guess let's look at that future. One one very exciting thing about trying to imagine the future is we have all of the test cases of all of the past. They tried to imagine a future too. But you bring up a just sort of thought experiment here for the listener to do at home. I had asked people to kind of close your eyes and imagine yourself 30 years from now. So the year 2049, you have different schools. There are some people who do kind of think of uh, like an optimistic Star Trek type uh, future where things are much shinier and the cars are cleaner and that sort of thing. And then a lot of people, it's they assume it's some sort of hellscape that it's either a corporate dystopia like Blade Runner where corporations or Black Mirror I guess is a more current reference where corporations and technology owns your brain and they are oppressing you in all sorts of creative and increasingly awful ways or if you're picturing just everything on fire due to environmental collapse or global warming or just there's food shortages and everyone is starving but what most people do in my circle, in the people I interact with, they think about what the world looks like 30 years from now rather than what they will be like in terms of will you have gotten your depression under control? Will you have found a way to deal with your anxiety? Will you have gotten better at dealing with people? Well, you have all of the things that are tripping you up now. How will you be doing with that? And aside from your own goals about your career and kids and all of that, just what will what you, will you be like? And I think the response a lot of people would have is, well, what difference does that make when the whole world is falling apart? But that's the thing. It makes all of the difference. It's actually the only thing that matters because you have very limited ability to stop the world from falling apart if you think that's what's going to happen. You have 
tremendous ability to determine what kind of person you will be and whether or not you will have defeated your personal demons by the time 2049 gets here or 2059 or whatever year you want to imagine. Because I am telling you as someone who never thought the future would get here or who thought that if the year 2019 got here, that it would be a post-apocalypse. That when you arrive and the apocalypse has not occurred and you're in your mid-40s, you will find in many ways past you kind of screwed current you (laughs) by refusing to acknowledge that that future was coming. But I am telling you, your future is coming. And if we get the Star Trek utopia and they have a machine that just makes the food out of thin air and they have clean, infinite clean energy, you can still wind up drinking yourself to death under a bridge somewhere. And I know that because people drink themselves to death under bridges right now, even though we are living in what would have looked like a Star Trek future to someone 200 years ago. Your own demons can still screw you over in a utopia. And here's the thing. If we are in for an environmental collapse of some kind, you'd better get your anxiety under control now. (laughs) (laughs) Right, because it's not going to be easier to deal with your depression or your fear of talking to people or your your lack of people skills or whatever is screwing you up right now. That's not going to get easier. If you have a future where things are scarce or more expensive or things are worse, all that means is that your margin for error is much slimmer than it is now. So if you truly thought we're all screwed in the way that you usually mean it in terms of economic collapse or whatever, that actually means you need to work even harder on self-improvement. If your answer to that is, well, why should I improve myself because we're all screwed anyway, you need to improve yourself, especially if we're all screwed. It's sort of underreported that there are and have been disasters or problems sort of all of the time and in my opinion there's three big ways we kind of roll with them either we fix the problem and then kind of forget it was a problem and that that the world was going to end or we don't fix it and just roll with it or just something lucky happens and it works itself out in all three of those cases you're still alive you are still in the world and like you say you need to you need to go ahead and be a person like you can't have this cinematic view of the future where you're just seeing like whole cities in some kind of like establishing shot in a movie you're you're going to be the perspective you see this future from and you want to do it from a, a healthy happy body and a, a good situation that's why we don't have to argue about whether or not the world is ending right the world doesn't end the whole mental concept of the credits rolling on civilization that's not a thing that happens uh, aside from an actual meteor strike that causes the entire planet to go extinct yeah you need to live your life without the assumption that a planet killing asteroid is going to show up okay your odds are against you I feel like when that happens, nobody is going to have even the time to stop and be like, I should have been lazier or like, ah, I should have eaten worse. Like It's like that benefit that I think people think they'll get out of out of living poorly is not is not a thing they'll enjoy. <laughs> so whatever scenario you 
are worried is coming or even think is inevitable, whether it's global warming or that there'll be some sort of automation will cause some sort of economic collapse, any of the whatever apocalypse scenario is out there. In every one of those cases, pretty much 40 years from now, 50 years from now, there will still be bills to pay. There will still be banks. There will still be jobs and marriages and bosses and kids. People will still be making friends and falling in love and having babies. You will still have to go to birthday parties of people you don't like and to attend (laughs) weddings and attend funerals and go celebrate holidays with family members you don't like. All of that stuff will continue in the event of an environmental collapse. You know, the worst case scenario as a world in which institutions become unreliable, food becomes more expensive, there's rationing of things, but society will still be here. You're not going to go from where we are now to where we're all just living in straw huts in the middle of the desert. You're, you're talking about more a Great Depression type thing, you know, a lot of unemployment. But in every one of these phases in history, when you look at anything from the Black Death to the Middle Ages, anything, you know, World War One in Europe that killed whatever percentage of Europe it killed. All of these things we think of as apocalyptic scenarios, which have happened multiple times. Yeah. While they were going on, people were still having to wake up and go to work and, <laughs> and get stuck in traffic. The apocalypse is not going to relieve you of those. In fact, it will make them a little bit harder to deal with because a lot of the things we we depend on now to kind of act as our safety net or as our buffer won't be there. I, I want to focus in particular on that environmental catastrophe one because, like we said, a, a true meteor-level event, there's nothing you can do. But whether or not environmental collapse is coming our way in the actual past and present, there are places, uh, specific uh, spots where they experienced environmental collapse. And the way through it was not just doing like lame jokes about, about, well, everything's dead. Who cares? It was people ended up just working a lot harder and trying a lot harder. Like where I am right now, Los Angeles, there was a day in July of 1943 and we'll link an article about it, but the smog got so unprecedentedly bad in LA and uh, July 26, 1943, that people in town thought it was a Japanese chemical attack. They thought it was an actual uh, like part of World War II being done to them, but it was actually just the environment. And now I'm in town and and I like my eyes aren't aren't weeping from all the terrible pollution. I can breathe and stuff. Uh, it's because people got out of bed and they they like worked on it and tried to fix it. We can also link right now, lately, the city of Cape Town, South Africa has had terrible water shortages and the reaction to it has been a bunch of people working really hard to try to fix it. Obviously, in both those cases and other ones, there are people who are part of the problem, but the people who are experiencing the situation are not just being like, well, that's it. Your reaction in that case will be to work really hard and be tested as a person. So like we've been saying, just just uh, giving up on things now is not going to be productive when the shit actually hits the fan. You'll actually be trying really, really hard. Look, this is why we like to watch movies about disasters. We envy the Avengers having to fight off an alien invasion that's wrecking New York. 
to have that kind of a problem where it's about survival, it's on a grand scale, and there's a clear threat, that's what humans are built for. That's why we fantasize about it. Yeah. What we're not built for is the death by a thousand cuts that is modern society, where there's a million little annoyances and little stressors and little deadlines, these little things that you are told you're supposed to be worried about, but you can't fit into your brain. So that whenever the doctor says to you, oh, you need to be watching your cholesterol or, oh, you're not saving enough for retirement. You just like roll your eyes and it's, it almost gives you a headache. Cause it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I'm, I'm trying to make rent this week. I'm trying to keep my boyfriend from walking out on me and I'm trying to come to terms with my abusive parents. There's so much, none of it is threatening your life for most of you listening to this. Most of you are not in mortal danger. It's all these little things, all these little threats, all of these little annoyances, each one taking a little bit more of a mental toll on you until Some of the people listening to this have really had to talk themselves out of swallowing a bottle of pills to escape it. If you take those same people and put them in a situation where it is a fight for life and death or where they're in a actual battle or war zone where they can sit down and here's the enemy, here's you, you know what you have to do, here's your instructions, it's very clear it is almost a relief or at least we expect it would be a relief. And when it's a case where you actually have a chance to go out and help your neighbors and do some good, make a real difference, really make a difference. And instead of going to an office all day where you're typing some stuff into a computer and you have no idea what it even is or what it does. And your, your whole job is trying to save some corporation pennies from transactions that that you won't get the benefit of. If instead of that, you are trying to bring food to a hungry person and they are thanking you and it's a crisis and we're all in this together, it is in those moments you realize, oh, this is what it's supposed to feel like. This is what solving problems is supposed to be where here's a person who needs help and I'm doing it and it's something I can do and they appreciate it. And we're all now here's someone helping me and we're all helping each other. It's like, Oh, I'm seeing a glimpse of what society is supposed to be like, but in order to get there, you almost have to strip away all of this other stuff. And unfortunately it it's often not until a disaster that, that we do that. Maybe that leads into a uh, book I read recently. It's called, a Paradise Built in Hell, The Extraordinary Communities That Arise in Disaster. It's by Rebecca Solnit, who's, a, who's an amazing author. Uh, we'll, we'll link a bunch of stuff. But she did a book about many, many actual disasters of the last 100 plus years. And the, the thing she found in it is that contrary to, I think, some people's expectations, whenever a major disaster happens, by and large, almost every time, the people it happens to get down to an enormous amount of work helping each other and do a lot of things to try to save each other from it. 
she looks at several in there. I'm, I'm just going to run through them relatively fast. The San Francisco earthquake was in April of 1906, and it ended up destroying almost the entire city, uh, partly because they did some firefighting attempts that actually made it worse. But local residents were pretty much all homeless all of a sudden, and people immediately set up impromptu soup kitchens and housing and tents for each other. Local businesses opened their doors, gave away all the food they had, and there was enormous efforts by the people in San Francisco to take care of each other as that happened. The psychologist William James was over at Stanford uh, nearby in Northern California. He came by and investigated it and did kind of one of the first disaster studies of people. And he concluded, quote, human beings respond with initiative, orderliness, and helpfulness. They remain calm and suffering and loss are transformed when they are shared experiences, end quote. And that's him describing what happens in a disaster. And her book finds that to be pretty common in disasters you know, like the Blitz of London in World War II and uh, New York City in 9-11, and also disasters maybe you don't know, like the Mexico City earthquake in 1985, and also a large explosion in Halifax, Nova Scotia in 1917. Also, of course, you may know the disaster of Hurricane Katrina. The media sort of miscovered it as primarily looting. Looting is often an incorrect word for people just getting food where they can find it when there is no more systems anymore because of a massive disaster. But if you look at any actual local end of the world, what people do is they work extremely hard and push themselves to all of their limits to take care of each other. And so, like we've been saying, it seems like kind of a coping mechanism for those little day-to-day -day troubles we all get stressed out by and don't want to deal with. And Jason, you, you captured beautifully how painful that can be. The relief from that of a disaster is just going to be lots of very different work that maybe, you know, evolutionary psychology is a little bit fuzzy, but may, maybe our, our, our long ago ancestors were built to deal with it and we'd like it too. But it's not just going to suddenly be some sort of easy world uh, that we all find uh, very low effort. Well, I can prove that our ancestors had this kind of response because we are here. Right. <laughs> the species survived. This is what has frustrated me about genres of show like The Walking Dead, where the premise says, well, once society collapses, it's every man for himself. And, you know, everyone it will just be murderous and backstabbers. Things will just keep getting worse and worse and worse. Every time someone will try to set up a society, it will inevitably collapse under the worst impulses of mankind, because that's what always happens. That's hilarious to me, because if you think that's what always happens, how do you think society got here? Right. <laughs> do you think humans parachuted down onto a planet where all of these cities were already built and all of these governments and infrastructure were already in place, and then we slowly ruined it? Here's what happened. We moved into areas that were dominated by wolves, Things were much more dangerous than zombies, and we slowly tamed it and built roads and buildings and doctor's offices and, and had families and made safe places where we could grow food and, and be sheltered from the weather. And we have tamed it so hard that we've now kind of gone too far. Uh, 
because <laughs> we've we've now paved over everything and and now all of those mortal dangers are gone and none of us hardly are in danger of being eaten by a mountain lion or something coming into our our bedroom right a, a danger that was ever present for virtually our entire existence until very recently and now we've dominated these predators so hard that we have to be careful that we've not wiped them out entirely because we are so overboard in how prosperous we are and breeding are breeding so far out of control and have built such grand cities and homes for ourselves that it's wiping out everything else. This earth was trying to render humanity extinct from the moment we appeared here and was trying to kill us off through disease and climate changes and natural disasters and everything else, inherent flaws in us with tribalism that causes us to kill each other. And we overcame all of that so hard that it's like if you scored so many points in a football game that the cops had to like come and make you stop. Right. <laughs> That's where we are now. We've dunked over nature so hard that we shattered the backboard. Humans as disgusting as they are, are a heroic species. We are here able to talk to you using technological marvels because of the acts of billions of heroes who survived very long odds to get us here, to build the roads that you drive on and to live under the governments and the systems that you depend on to keep you safe. That these heroes who came in the past who made these extremely comfortable lives we have comparatively to what they had in the past. And yes, when there's a disaster, the heroism comes through. And if there was a zombie apocalypse, we would tame it very quickly and we would have society rebuilt in about 30 to 50 years. In a real Walking Dead scenario, we have real-life examples all over the place that there is initial confusion and there's an, an adjustment period, but pretty quickly people reestablish trade. They reestablish laws. They reestablish rules because everyone benefits from those things. The people who have various skills, we get them back to work doing the thing they're good at and get a process in place by which they can share their knowledge with other people. So other people can have those skills, all of the things we did to get here in the first place so that there's a, a society for the zombies to topple, we would put it right back. That's how it got here in the first place. Those structures have been knocked down over and over. We have rebuilt them every time. That's what yeah. we do. This end of the world fear we've been talking about. Maybe do you want to talk about that poll done in Afghanistan? Yeah, there was a in 2011 on the 10th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And when America was, of course, still in Afghanistan, it is still there now. They did a poll and found that 92% of the locals in Afghanistan had never heard of the 9-11 attacks. 92%. 92% had no idea what it was. So they had no context for why the Americans were even there. Afghanistan is less a country and more a whole bunch of remote villages and tribes and people. I bring that up because that seems unthinkable that in 2011 in a world when 
we are all so connected that there's, you know, a good chunk of the planet that is still not. Even if they have the internet, it's not the same access we have, or they don't have televisions or whatever. The way they were living is the way humans lived for 99% of our history, which is that having to worry about worldwide events, like that's a part of the daily thing you have to worry about. That's brand new. Once upon a time, you could kind of decide how much news you wanted to consume. Like a very worldly person in 1865 could absolutely get the right newspapers if they wanted to, and they could read about the events of Europe or read what Napoleon was doing if they so chose. But if someone wanted to live their life never knowing who Napoleon was, they could do that too. As time has gone on in the 80s, you know, you had the invention of the 24-hour news cycle. People don't realize, like, CNN news that's just on all the time, that just happened in my lifetime. Now the news comes into your pocket. This is new. And as much as I said as the human brain struggles to think about how to plan for the future and how we were kind of not built for that, not only on an evolutionary scale are we not equipped to take on all of the problems of the world i as a human being who was born in an era when we didn't have to do that (laughs) it's the same brain forget about evolution right i was born in an era when for the first several years of my life this was not a thing we had to do like you know in school we knew the basics that the soviets were evil and that the there was the threat of nuclear war but could not have told you anything about what was going on in Japan or China or... So now when you have to keep up with every celebrity scandal, every celebrity outrage, every outrageous thing someone has said, and you need to devote energy to worrying about that, that there's been a crackdown on women in Iran or that Saudi Arabia is about to execute a person for being an atheist, all these things that are important and they're real... And have tremendous impact on millions of lives. I can't argue that you should ignore them, but your brain is not physically capable of caring about all of it. It's not. And so what happens when you try is eventually you will have the impulse to say, what's the point? That cause and effect does seem really clear. Yeah, that, that eventually you're overloaded with so much information that you both don't care and start doing the bits about, well, soon a meteor will strike Saudi Arabia and Iran and every country. So who cares who needs it? And maybe the the takeaway and the thing for people to do in their lives to manage this is to not take their foot off the gas pedal of working on their own life and living and, and uh, making themselves uh, the best person they can be and the happiest person they can be. That's really all I have to offer because <laughs> <laughs> ultimately information is only helpful to you if you use it to motivate some kind of action. If the information motivates you to inaction, then it's useless. So I'm not saying stop worrying about the world. I'm saying you have to think in terms of how does this affect what I do next? What what do you want me to, to do? It's kind of like if you're with a friend and you're outside and they just keep complaining about how hot it is. And eventually you're like, okay, do you want to go back home? What, what do you want me to do? I can't turn the sun off. You keep telling me you're hot. I can't do anything about that. 
it becomes sort of like that. Are you asking me to take some sort of action? Is there a company I need to boycott? Is there something I need to do? In a perfect world, you would be looking at the information that's coming in and saying, how does this affect how I live my life? And ultimately, the answer is going to be the same. I have to turn myself into the type of, of person who can handle all of this. I have to be the type of person who, if I'm still alive 60 years from now, if you're listening to this and you're 25, there's a great chance you'll still be alive at age 105, that you will yeah. live to see the year 2100 something. My God. If that seems unthinkable, really come to terms with the fact that that is much, much, much more likely than the meteor of death. And so if you knew for sure you were going to live that long, you would take a lot of steps to say, okay, I've got to take care of myself. I've got to take care of my mental health. I've got to take care of my teeth. They've got to last me all this time. I've got to take care of my relationships. I've got to train myself to do something that will still be useful to the world 40 years from now. That a lot of the self-improvement stuff, it's not necessarily selfish. It's just saying, look, the future is coming and you do not want to be in a position where you're old and you hate the young version of you for not preparing yourself for the, the future that turned up. Because we're in this mess with the environment and with everything because we did have generations of people who didn't. Think about the future. They did to you what you're about to do to yourself, which is they looked yeah. in the future and said, what difference does it make? I'm just going to go ahead and drive this car or do or put this into the waterways or whatever, whatever was easiest. And what was easiest was dumping the pollution into the river and burning CO2 and burning coal. But you are doing a version of that to yourself if when you think in terms of what should I be doing for my career, for my marriage, for my future family, and if you come back and say, well, what's the point? Because we've got this global warming. Well, guess what? That's how we got global warming. Right. Is you had a <laughs> lot of people that, look, that looked into the future and they could not conceptualize it as a real thing. Do you want to be better than them? This is how you do it. And I'm not talking about going out and changing the world. I'm saying just changing you because regardless of whether or not we defeat these problems or however we adapt to them, the one thing that will be in common about all of your possible futures is that you will be there and all of your baggage and all of that stuff will be there. So regardless of what's coming, your task is the same which is you've got to get your stuff in order and be and be ready for it. And anything that you hear, anything you say, any mode of thinking that motivates you to stay in bed instead is poison by definition. And I shouldn't yeah. even have to argue that. It's automatically poison. It seems right to me. Baked into all that, there's the good news of, you know, unless some accident happens or something, we all get to be alive for the future. You know, however many years out that is. I, I think that's interesting. That's like kind of a fantasy for a lot of people. Like, what if I was in Star Trek or got to go to the moon or something? We'll get to be in the future. We'll get to see. That's, that's pretty cool to me. That's ultimately who we're talking to. 
Yeah. Because the future is worth being there for. I'm telling you as someone who was an angsty kid and a depressed teenager and uh, has always kind of had that dark mindset. Having shown up, uh, I'm very glad that I stuck around for the future. My parents were born right around the end of World War II. How easy would it have been for my grandparents to have said, well, who would want to bring a child into this world? We just had Hitler destroy all of Europe and apocalyptic weapons have been, but they didn't say that. They brought kids into the world in the mid seventies in the middle at the end of Vietnam and the cold war, they brought a kid into the world and I'm glad they did. Ultimately being alive is better. No matter what comes, it's still better. Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Jason Pargin for exploring the apocalypse with me and I think partly debunking the idea that the apocalypse is a thing that happens. There are bad things that happen at various times and then people work through them because that's what humanity has always done. Why don't you be ready to pitch in? I think that's a good thing. And speaking of pitching in, in our food notes, you will find all of the things that contributed to this idea that we talked about today. The key one is Jason's column that sparked the show. It is called Five Crucial Things to Remember About Our Wretched Hellscape. You'll find it at that link to crack.com. And uh, obviously a tongue-in-cheek title. We are not in a wretched hellscape. I'm in a very nice studio right now. And I hope you're someplace with air conditioning or, or I don't know, air fresheners. Just a good air, I guess, is my main point. Also, if you want to dive very deeply into something we touched on in the episode a bit, you'll find a link to that Rebecca Solnit book I mentioned. Uh, It's from 2010. The book is called A Paradise Built in Hell, The Extraordinary Communities That Arise in Disaster. It's an incredible piece of work. There are far too many inspiring stories of people in it for us to talk about on the show. We couldn't cover uh, nearly all of them. But her main thing is incredibly inspiring. Uh, For instance, she looks at the Blitz that, that bombed London in World War II, the Nazis bombing it, and finds that that was a case of ordinary people taking care of each other in extraordinary ways, and also argues that that situation, that very, very special Blitz that we all think of as, oh, this was England's darkest hour, but then just magic happened. She argues very convincingly that what actually happened is people did what they always do in a disaster. We take care of each other the very best we can. Uh, Just one other amazing story in the book to pick out. This is from New York City's reaction to 9-11. There was a man named Tobin James Mueller, and here's him describing what happened to himself. Quote, I began as one guy behind a table of coffee and donuts stationed on a sidewalk alongside a temporary ambulance dispatch mobile home unit. After three days' time, I find myself the coordinator of an army of 200 volunteers who have transformed the entire Pier 59 warehouse into a makeshift mini-mall for rescue workers on break. In addition, we staff a thriving deli-sized food station that feeds hundreds of firemen and ambulance personnel along the West Side Highway. We stock an amateur distribution center that fills a police harbor boat every 20 minutes with respiratory masks, goggles, medicine, clothes, shovels, food, and anything else we can find destined for the Hudson River side of the World Trade Center. End quote. I know that was sort of a rapid fire description of his experience, but that is surprisingly common in disasters. Regular people will find themselves doing an enormous amount of work and care and effort to take care of each other. And uh, you don't need to like constantly be vigilant of disasters in order to do that. Just be the uh, the best, biggest, happiest person you can be because we'll all be around a long time and around in a lot of stuff. 
One other book we'll also link in the food notes because I, I owe Discovery of that Solnit book to it. There's a great new book by Jenny O'Dell called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And she pointed me to that Rebecca Solnit book. But also it's an excellent text on frameworks and mental approaches we can do to be overwhelmed less by all the information out there. You don't need to stop consuming it or completely unplug. There just may be ways to manage your intake of stories and events going on in the world that it is not uh, helping you to linger on all of the time. Between Jason and Rebecca Solnit and Jenny O'Dell, it's authors all the way down this episode. It's very fun to me. And beyond that, this episode's about to launch into Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. That is our show's theme music. This episode was engineered by Sam Kiefer and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. And I have a request. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you listen to shows. It takes less than a minute and it's free. And it's it's sort of an automatic way to present this show to more people. You don't need to go like email everyone you know or something. But positive reviews raise it up in those algorithms on those platforms. And then more people know about it. And it'd be a huge favor. I'd really appreciate it. Also, counterfactual. Maybe you hated this episode. Well, then let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media, a space where there is good news if you know where to look for it. My Twitter account is at Alex Schmitty, my Instagram is Alex Schmittstagram, and I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. It has my free, fun email newsletter of just things you'll enjoy. Maybe that's a positive for you. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.